This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. This is episode number 285, our first episode of 2023. And joining me remotely from Ohio is Sean White, not the snowboarder. Oh, I'm sure you've heard that a million times. Um, but Sean White, uh, co-founder of Little Fish Brewing in Athens and Dayton, Ohio. Did I get that right, Sean? Yeah, original brewery, Athens, and um, the recent satellite in Dayton. How's it going, Jamie? Hey, I'm excited to talk to you. I was trying to think about, uh, since we have to do this remotely, somebody that I've, I've hung out with, uh, and I think the last time we were hanging out was, was that 2019 at the perennial uh, Midwest Belgian Beer Fest? That sounds about and right, because it would have been right before COVID. It was definitely before COVID, and uh, you know we, we popped over and we're hanging out with uh, Moxie over at Rockwell for a little bit, so that was open at the time. I think I think 2019 was the year. Anyway, uh, you know, in the meantime, like last year, I saw you uh, you won a gold medal for for a mixed fermentation uh, wood aged beer. Uh, was what Apple Brandy maker of things back in 2020? You won a silver medal for Cleft. You've won a couple of World Beer Cup medals also for mixed fermentation beers. And I thought, hey, maybe maybe we should just talk about mixed fermentation beers to kick off this first episode of 2023. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining me here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, mixed firm is definitely like my wheelhouse. Um, like we don't really have to, uh, limit ourselves to just brewing one thing. So I, we don't, but if we had to, it would be mixed firm. So yeah, it's definitely a, a source of passion and something that you spend a lot of time focusing on. We're going to talk about how you do that, how you make compelling beers in that kind of mixed firm realm, um, how you've managed to you know win some significant medals <laughs> repeatedly over the years in that category, but also just looking at it from a you know kind of creative and technical perspective. Um, before we do that, for years, G&D Chillers has chilled the beers you love partnering with 3,000 plus breweries across the country. They're proud of the cool partnerships they've built over the past 30 years, and they know brewing doesn't stop at five o'clock, nor do they. GD uses quality components, expert craftsmanship, and constant innovation. With 24 seven service and support, your brewery will never stop. Remote monitor your chiller for simple and fast access to all the information you need, providing you with the peace of mind your operation is running smoothly. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com or call to discuss your next project. Also, this episode is sponsored by BSG exclusive distributors of RAR Malting Company, producers of quality malt since 1847. Navigating the seas of brewing can be a treacherous affair, so let RAR North Star Pills be your guide. With overtones of honey and sweet bread flavor and aroma notes of hay and nutty character rar north star pills is a base malt you can set your compass by great for any beer style but perfect for a classic lager set a course for bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn how it's a new year and i've got new sponsor reads and some even some new sponsors on online here so it's kind of fun I don't know why I get so excited about sponsor reads, but but uh, but I definitely do, and I can tell you, our listeners out there do too, because people can often repeat them back to me verbatim, uh, which is 
really, really wild. Nonetheless, Sean, let's talk about your history. Um, oh, hey, but, you, uh, what was that? But first, I think you reminded me. I, I might need to look up G and D pretty soon. My chiller's uh, not doing so well. It's the <laughs> original chiller, and it's it's treated us well, but it's uh, coming up on eight years old now. So yeah, it's like having a little trouble there on knockouts and stuff right now. So we're just like crossing our fingers a lot of times. <laughs> I am sure the folks at G&D would love to talk to you about that. Um, let's talk about your your kind of arc through brewing. What was that aha moment with craft beer? And how, how did uh, that track then through the point where you decided to start a brewery and uh, pursue this as a profession? Um, I mean, I'll try to keep that kind of concise. Um, you know, I remember uh, a friend bringing me along for an all grain batch of beer in uh, probably like 97, you know, I was like still in high school and he was in college doing it for his like some sort of college thesis project or something like that. Um, then like flash forward to, um, 2001 or two, um, I was a, a bit sort of a transition time and looking for, looking for something to do. And I found a copy of the complete joy of home brewing on uh, my stepdad's shelf and, uh, kind of just like, like I'm pretty, when I get into something, I like hyper focus. And so I got into that book and, um, I was just like, okay, I'm going to do this. going to just start all grain. And, um, that was a mistake. Uh, screwed up a lot of, uh, screwed up a lot of batch. I could have learned just as easily doing, um, you know, how to ferment beer using extract. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I just kind of, I dove head first into it. Um, that was, I was living in Athens, Ohio at the time. Um, but when I started to get like really into home brewing and um, like craft beer culture was when I lived in uh, Brooklyn. So I, I lived in Brooklyn from around, uh, I'd say like 2005 to 2009. And um, I was home brewing a lot out of my apartment. What neighborhood? Uh, I was in um, Carroll Gardens and also Greenpoint, a couple of years in each. But um, during that time. I was I, in Long Island City, Sunnyside, 2001 to two, uh, 2003. And then. Long Island City, 2003 to 2010. So uh, we were yeah. strangely close to each other. At yeah, that yeah. Point. So we were there in the time when there was only like four, maybe five breweries in New York, and now it's like exploded. But um, the good old days. Yeah, I, I lived um, pretty close to Six Point, which was at, at that time really just a neighborhood brewery, um, and uh, they would like sell me, you know, bulk grain and hops, and like give me yeast, and then. Um, started attending some, uh, BJCP classes that were, um, being put on by the New York city homebrewers guild and, um, started getting very involved in the homebrewers guild and, you know, became a BJCP judge. And, um, but basically, yeah, I, I did a few years in New York and I was working as like a professional cook. And then I worked some odd, weird office jobs for a while, but I had my sights on brewing, you know, like at some point I kind of decided like I would like to be a professional brewer and then it was just kind of figuring out how to make that transition um did like an internship for six point but they weren't really like hiring at the time and then um I was kind of feeling like it was time to either become a New Yorker forever or maybe pack up and go um at the same time that I was kind of like not really feeling the brewing opportunities open up so I decided to move to Portland Oregon so I moved out to Portland in um, 2009 and ended up getting my first, my first paid job for an actual brewery was at um, a little brew pub that is now closed, but it was called Alameda. And um, that was a good like first job. Um, learned the ropes and whatnot. Um, 
but the first one that got me like really more on a technical level learning about how to like brew brew the right way i would say was uh working for cascade um out in uh i was actually just mostly working clean beer out in beaverton um was i mean i I worked some with the barrels but um it was i was mostly just making their their clean offerings and learning how to make those beers nice um and so i did a couple years out in oregon and then um got sort of like a, a recruitment proposition from Brad Clark at Jackie O's. Um, Jackie O's is in my hometown of Athens. And um, as they were starting their expansion, um, like they needed someone to take over the brew pub. So um, I uh, decided to move home. And that worked out kind of well for me because I really like where I'm from. And I always sort of had this idea of like coming back here someday and opening a brewery and bringing some of the cool things I had seen from the sort of bigger outside world back to our hometown, which can be in some ways just a little limited as far as like resources and like, uh, you know, some of, some of the things that like big cities have or just different places have. Um, so, you know, I, I had this idea um, even before I came back to Athens that I wanted to open a brewery at some point. Um, and so I worked for Jackie is for a couple of years um, and really learned a lot, honestly, at the pub, like just kind of figuring out how to uh, more like run it, you know, not just like be like a, a person paid to do this job, but like sure. figure out how to make recipes and move production around and stuff. And um, yeah, I definitely like learned a lot in that time um, and also was working with um a friend from elementary school actually uh on a business plan to um, start what became little fish so um you know and little fish is um i would say um very inspired by belgian traditions um very inspired by um farmhouse beer and and mixed culture beer um and also like very inspired by some of the really cool like down to earth um tap rooms that you find in places like Asheville and Portland where um they're very casual um very like open to nature and um very like family friendly and very sort of community oriented um and so those were kind of like the original concepts that we put together in Little Fish um as well as not to blabber on too much but I mean, the other, the other thing I really wanted to get into this was um, this local sourcing component, um, which I'm sure we can maybe talk about a little bit at some point. But um, just like the not necessarily, not breweries, but um, just restaurants and food culture around Athens is, um, is very, very into local sourcing. So I think I was influenced by that from a young age and um, really wanted to see how to bring the local sourcing that a lot of the restaurants and um, local farmers were doing and, and like bring that into a, a beery context. Well, let's, uh, I want to talk about, you know, how you decided to, to build this beer program. Obviously you mentioned local sourcing is key to you and you have this kind of, you know, Belgian influence uh, impacting, you know, the overall kind of feel wanting to build a kind of cafe, the, you know, type uh, environment that is open to everybody. But that also means, you know, you also have to make beer that, 
people want to drink in 2015 uh, in your local market. And of course, had to over the last seven years evolve that, um, you know, as the entire craft beer market moves in varying directions. So let's talk a little bit about that. But first, AccuBrew is a new analytical tool, unlike anything else on the market, that gives brewers like you unprecedented insight into your fermentation process. You can remotely monitor sugar conversion, temperature, and clarity to ensure consistency by quickly detecting out-of-range conditions. The AccuBrew system creates and stores permanent records so you can compare every batch. AccuBrew goes beyond a simple measurement tool. AccuBrew helps you monitor, document, and manage your fermentation process in real time. Also, at ProBrew, they believe that your brewery deserves equipment as unique as the drinks that you craft. That's why their solutions are specifically designed to help you brew your beer, not someone else's. From brewing to fermenting to carbonating and can filling, ProBrew's customizable equipment empowers breweries to expand operations at their own pace. For more information, visit www.probrew.com or email contact us at probrew.com to learn exactly how they can take your operations to the next level. ProBrew, brew your beer. And if you hear Old Orchard mentioned in the brewing community, don't be surprised. Their flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. Their new brewing customers often mention discovering Old Orchard through word-of-mouth recommendations of another brewer. To join the core of Old Orchard's brewing community, learn more at oldorchard.com slash brewer. So Sean, from a creative standpoint, as you're building beers now, obviously you've got a bunch of stuff in barrels. Um, what does that creative process around creating a beer look like? Do you brew with an ultimate beer in mind um, when you were putting that in a barrel? Is it a single stream process or, you know, do you build the other direction and, you know, create components through this barrel program that you can then build and blend and, and create beers out of that, you know, you know where does, how, you know, what does that creative process look like for you now? Um, it's, it's so like scatterbrained and, um, you know, um, it, they <laughs> can, it could fluid, it could for sure be either direction. Um, but like one of the things that I've definitely learned is that, um, it, it can be difficult having, um, uh, like starting with, um, a very clear idea of what you want to end up with, uh, especially as it pertains to like specialty ingredients, like, um, let's just say, for instance, you make a batch of, um, you know, uh, an amber sour beer with a whole bunch of, uh, roasted pumpkins in it and you ferment it in the cool ship, let's say hypothetically. And, you know, uh, two, three years later, uh, you just still are coming around to this beer going like, it just never turned out. You, d you can't blend that down. You know, I mean, that batch went to the ground, <laughs> you know? And, um, I mean, I'm what I'm, one of the things I wouldn't say like as a rule, but like as a, as a, a general, um, a general rule, but like not always stick to it is, um, like add specialty ingredients later um, once you have like successful um, beer that is like properly fermented, properly sour, um, you know, because you you don't really know what's going to turn out. And like at least on our system, you know, if if uh, if we have a beer like that and it's 10 barrels, it, if it can only make like 30% of a blend, like I cannot sell 30 or 30 barrels of 
one type of sour beer. That would that'd be like five year supply for us. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I'm it's an finding interesting one on, that, man, on managing risk, right? You know, yeah. like let's undertake the risk of the expense of these additional ingredients further on in the process where we already know that we've gotten to a good point on that, you know, and, and so that, uh, rather than throwing everything in on the front end where, uh, it's, you're just multiplying uh, your investment into this thing that may not ultimately work out. Right. Um, and also I just really think that most of the time, um, a lot of these specialty flavors that we want to be in the beer, I think that you don't really want to go adding those, um, earlier on because many of them will be lost by the time that the beer is actually through a mature sour um, state. So, I mean, if you're talking about, you know, anything from like forage ingredients or herbs or spices, um, I think, um, you know, I'm not saying never add those on in the beginning, but, um, I've, I've definitely seen just a lot of those characteristics just like this, like what's the point of adding something like lemon verbena, uh, 18 to 32 months before a beer is finished. Like that's a very, you know, volatile oil. It's going to be, you know, probably just gone or like changed into something else by the time you actually like get that into a package. That, the time for something like that is a lot closer to the end, you know? So. Sure. Sure. So now as you think about bringing them now, uh, you know, where do you, where do you start then in that process? Like, okay, we, we want to, mm-hmm. you know, make, uh, you know, load some more, a mixed fermentation beer into some barrels knowing that we'll turn it into a beer, you know, in a year or two years from now. Um, you know, do you build, you brew off of a standard recipe or a standard kind of subset of recipes and what, what is, you know, what is that recipe or those recipes? Where do they, where do they start in terms of, uh, you know, kind of grain? We definitely have some sort of standard sour blonde, um, sort of like lambic adjacent base, um, or maybe even a sour blonde that would be like, um, less bitter hoppy than a lambic base. Um, and then we would definitely have like a, a sour red, um, like base beer. Uh, like those are all, th- those are all like sort of go-to recipes that exist and, um, could be, man, I still like, you know what's hard about talking about this, Jamie, is I change so much stuff constantly. I mean, <laughs> we might brew, like, let's say we make a sour red recipe, but sometimes, um, depending on availability of fermentation space, um, what I want the final product to turn out with, or like, or whatever, that might be fermented in primary with um, a clean yeast. That might be fermented in primary with a mixed culture that might be fermented only in barrels with a mixed culture might be fermented only, only in barrels, but with a mixed culture, but plus a bump of a little bit of Saccharomyces. Um, and I, I just like, I just keep messing with everything sometimes to my own detriment. (laughs) Um, you know, what are um, the factors, what are the factors that influence that decision? Is it, you know, time of year based on what are the other beers you're, you know, filling out or, you know, the winter time when maybe taproom traffic might be a little bit lower. Do you brew certain types of things or spend yeah, more time on I mean, things? Or do you just then like get inspired by something in particular and say, Hey, I want to like make a couple of these and then throw these into barrels because I just tasted something. I want to try a few ideas around that. What, sure. what are some of those um, factors that well, impact it? Let me just think about some of the things that we've made recently. So, um, like, well, for sure, um, Brewing and packaging sour beer 
in the winter time is a good use of time. Um, and also it's cool ship season and we do have a cool ship. So, uh, although I'm still not brewing like a whole lot of batches of cool ship beer in the winter, um, that, you know, that is the time for that brewing. Um, so, and the cycle works out, right? You can empty barrels, you know, package out and then, and cool ship to refill those right there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I will say I'm pretty proud that, um, you know, like we, we actually just packaged our first batch of like spontaneous, like, I mean, I was going to call it method traditional and now <laughs> I go to the method traditional website and it looks like it's just defunct. I'm pretty sure, um, the folks that started that, um, nomenclature maybe gave up on it. You know, I know that was somewhat led by Jester King and I think they've just gone to the the spawn branding, which is working out really well for them, you know. Um, but now I'm like, okay, well, back to the drawing board. What do we call this? Luckily, I did not have a label figured out yet. Um, but uh, but yeah, um, so we have we have a spontaneous beer. Do you need a, a brand? Do you need do you need that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we can call like, it to sell the beer. Does it does it really help? I mean, I don't know. I yeah, don't know. I mean, uh, does does a, does a spontaneous blend need its own brand? Nope. I need to figure out what to call it. For sure. sure. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, I've got, um, you know, we've got a, we've got a nice beer. We've got one. It's in bottles. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, have even tried some bottles to make sure it's going in the right direction. Cause I have, uh, you know, heard some kind of slight horror stories from some friends about like them thinking that they had like a good product and, um, they got it in the bottles and like something went wrong and went sideways in the bottle. Um, you know, so, um, I don't know. I'm just like very excited about this. Um, sure. I think and so. Um, this this spontaneous beer, you know, is, this one is lambic adjacent. So you know, a big wheat component, uh, you know, a pilsner malt mashed mm-hmm. very hot to to make it as unfermentable as possible and create a long yeah long mixed fermentation. So this one is everything done according to the method traditional rule book, which is. Um, everything from it's, uh, I think it's oral, I, I believe is the name is like basically the, the Belgian Lambic brewers, sure, sure. same, same rule set. Right. Um, which I, I, I have some opinions on all this stuff, but, um, but, um, so, so do is, other Lambic brewers. Yes. It is a, <laughs> a turbid mash, you know, yeah. um, age hops in the boil, long extended boil up to the cool ship, um, overnight cooling. And then pitched into barrels and not inoculated we've at least got um this set of um i I built like this uh barn beam like it's actually like these uh you know probably 1800s um farmhouse wood beams that were um like basically stripped out of a neighbor's house when he was doing an addition so he had this cool lumber and he was like hey man you know anything we could do with this and I, i was like actually yeah i got a perfect purpose for it we're going to put it above the cool ship. And so I built this like, it's basically like a, a tabletop that is suspended from the ceiling above our cool ship. Um, and it's just like really rough surface old wood, you know, so we don't clean that. And so that has been, you know, sprayed down with some house cultures. That was pretty early on. Um, I, you know, I, it's, it's kind of funny because like, so as much as I love, you know, Belgian beer, I have not personally been to Belgium and I really want to do that. Um, I think, I mean, I have 
I, you know, a number of thoughts on all these things. Um, but like, you know, if I think about who I know, um, the best Lambic brewers in the United States that I have tried their stuff personally, it's Beechwood. And I've talked with, uh, Harrison quite a bit about like his process. I know they do steam their barrels down. Um, I don't have a steamer. I don't own that. So that's not a possibility, but, um, I think, um, if we are, if we like what a barrel and I'm, I'm still very, very early in this and I, our progress, you know, like we've had the cool ship operating for like three years now. If we, if we like what a barrel is doing, I'm going to probably, you know, clean that out with like some hot bursts of water, you know, hot liquor tank water, um, and or maybe hit it with some sanitizer on the inside but like i i know like there's still some stuff living in that wood right like that wood is not dead dead um if i don't like what a barrel is doing and i'm trying to save it i might like i like we just did this one like where we um we uh because so we're fermenting i guess i should say we're fermenting in these um 500 liter punch-ins um that i've got on these um i've got them each on their own individual cart they're all outfitted with like stainless um like racking arms and um and fittings like a tank right so it's like a it's a miniature fooder it holds four barrels of volume and so you know i'm i'm not like just gonna probably toss that if it if it makes a bad batch i'm gonna try to save that at least like give it one more try before we actually toss out that wood and try again so um if i don't like what a barrel is doing i'm gonna fill it all the way with hot liquor tank water um and like just let that soak for like an hour and just like kill it down to like dead neutral um and so you know i don't know those are some ways that i've gone about things so far um those barrels that i just killed down to dead neutral um i really wanted to help those barrels right like i wanted them to get a good head start and not go into like I mean, I'll tell you what, like some of the worst beer, no, the worst beer I've ever, ever tried is, is like spontaneous beer that went sideways. Right. I mean, those barrels were so gross. It was like some phenolic that just like, once it got in your mouth, it just didn't leave. Like you couldn't taste anything for like 10, 15 minutes after you drank this, like even a sip. Um, so I was like, okay, well, we, I know we don't want that to happen again. Right. Um, so those barrels i did give a little bump um and i don't think i would really call those specific barrels spontaneous but what i pitched into them was our successful spontaneous beer um so you know i don't know there's like there's like i don't have one way yet of doing these things um but i think if i like the cultures that are happening in a barrel i'm more likely to intentionally not totally kill them down if I don't like them, I'm more likely to intentionally kill them and um, try to give the barrel a little bit of help because um, it's going to need it or it's going to turn into like hot dog and band-aids again. Right. And cabbage. I agree with you on the on the Beechwood thing. And we've I've talked to Harrison on the podcast and talked to Ryan Fields who had initially set up that Beechwood program. And they're, they're absolutely brilliant. They're making amazing beer. 
and and they work on this kind of two-sided project uh, process just like you do you know where there is spontaneous beer and that's one pathway that their beer takes and then uh, they also are maintaining cultures and you know pitching beer with that culture um, because it produces beer that they like to drink and that tastes great and that fits the the profile that they're they are trying to achieve both of those things are valid i, I mean we do i think romanticize the idea of spontaneous beer because we've been told that story and it, fe- it feels romantic and it just sounds you know so yeah. natural you know i mean we have this we have this whole culture of natural which uh um isn't really non-intervention you know because every brewer is taking making some interventions on this it's more you know a little generally low intervention in, in some way or another um and i think that that's a fair way to approach this but the, the ultimate goal is to make beer that tastes good isn't it um, yeah, I mean, I guess I have a couple of things that I really stand by. Um, one is, you know, we really try to be like, for whatever it means, we try to be a sustainable business. And whether that's, you know, how much we waste or whether or not we're recycling things that we, you know, use or you know, how much we're driving our beer around. Like, we try to think about everything, you know, like, where does our energy come from? You know, we have solar panels. And so, um, to me, like the idea of, um, making beer that like 25% of it may go down the drain, um, is a little like, um, antithetical. I don't know if that's the right word or even a word like, but to that, to that value. So I want to make sure that these beers are going to be like successful beers. Um, not to mention the time and effort that we put into them. Um, you know, I want to do respect to the farmers and the people that, that grow these things. You know, I'm getting them really damn close to all Ohio right now, even on the, even on the spontaneous side. Um, so, you know, I don't want to, um, just make beer that just has a good chance of just ending up in the drain. I feel like that would be a little irresponsible, but I also definitely believe in, um, transparency and I, I hate lack of transparency. Um, that is, I mean, it's common in every industry, but it's definitely can be common in brewing too. So, you know, I always want to make sure that we're not like, um, hiding things. Right. So those, enough, those will, those kinds of values will guide how we talk about these beers and, um, you know, the amount of information, like I'm, I'm, I'm constantly like, when it, when there is a question of how much information to give people about what we do, I'm always going to, you know, go for more because I think that's, that's, there's so much, um, you know, kind of like lying by omission that can't, that can happen in not just brewing, but like any industry. And I don't dig it. And I think it, it's unfair to other people that do it with like more integrity when you don't say what you're doing. Right. So I don't know. Fair Sorry enough, for the stream enough. of con- conscience. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to yeah, yeah, pivot yeah. and bring this back down to some of that technical process. And we can talk about fermentation, maintaining the culture, um, and then talk mm. about how you, uh, your process around, you know, adding fruit, um, building blends and whatnot. Before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brewhouse to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brewhouses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about 
SS Brutex Innovation List, head on over to ssbrutech.com. Also, have you heard of Christian Hansen? They're the fermentation experts with over 100 years of experience in dairy and wine, and they're now bringing that knowledge of microbes to brewers with their SmartBev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria. This portfolio allows for a consistent performance at the brewery and produces a range of high-quality brews. Reimagine what your beer can be. Go to chr hansen H-A-N-S-E-N, Dot com to learn more about the SmartBev line of products. And join the craft beer community in Sacramento March 19th through 22nd for the California Craft Beer Summit. Access educational sessions on business and technical skills and network with industry leaders all under one roof. Speakers include David Walker, Natalie and Vinny Chalurzo, and Ken Grossman. The summit is an important opportunity for your entire brewing team from production to sales to marketing to develop their knowledge, skills, and experience in the industry. Early bird discounts end January 20th. Visit CACraftBeerSummit.com to register. So, Sean, let's talk about fermentation then. Um, you know, you, you, you load these into punch-ins for fermentation, um, you know, whether it's a spontaneous culture, if it, obviously you're not adding anything in that, but you also make these with a culture that you've maintained and, and grown, uh, um, you know, how did that culture develop and how do you continue to, to maintain that culture and keep it within the, the bounds of producing beer that you like and beer that you don't then have to, uh, to get rid of, unfortunately. Um, yeah, let me think if I can, um, you know, I think earlier on when you were asking me more about like specific recipes and process, that was a little hard for me because I do like off the wall shit, but like I do have, um, a, some, like I have some clear thoughts on the mixed culture stuff and I have some clear thoughts on some general barrel main, maintenance stuff that really help us. Um, our, our mixed culture originally uh was it's from east coast east al buck i want to name drop um because like i don't know he was um we were both involved in like the burgundian babel belt i don't know have you ever heard of this it's um like no. pre pre uh milk the funk um there was a website called the burgundian babel belt and it was all like people that were just like uh very serious about belgian beer um and then there was a homebrew forum on that and like a lot of the people that um that you're talking about like um chad jacobson and mike tonsmeyer and um and me and um uh uh tim from santa darius so we were all on there trading homebrews and stuff and talking about beer so um anyway so alvin started east coast yeast and um i had used some of his um some of his blends that he was doing like he was like giving them out on the on the babble belt and like sending out people like his vials of these like homemade like Flanders blends and like bug farm and stuff. So, um, he was, uh, the guy I called when, when it was time to like make a Flanders red and get a, get a really like mixed culture. And so, um, that was the beginning culture and that went into the fooder. Um, and I know we kept, I know we kept some off on the side, um, to kind of like be in stainless and be sort of like a continuously fed culture. But like, the, the main fooder, and we only have one 30-barrel fooder, um, really sort of became the thing that inoculated many, many beers at Little Fish. So, um, you know, uh, 
whether it was like a beer that was um, already fermented with a clean thing and stainless or or what have you, oftentimes that go-to culture when it came time to pitch was literally just a few gallons of food or beer. Uh, and that's, that's worked out really, really well for us. Um, that fooder culture has, has, um, changed like very, very little over the years. Um, you know, I keep that fooder, um, pretty much a Solera all the time and it's never entirely emptied. It, it, I believe, yeah, we have not emptied it one time completely since it was filled. And, um, it's, it's just banging. It's doing great. Um, I think to that, I've added like, ever so occasionally well no it was just in the early days um there was you know there was some times when we drink a really nice whole farmstead or a jolly pumpkin or a russian river and we say okay these drugs these drugs are going in like i don't know to what extent those microbes actually affected the culture but they went in there um and then so we had this um we had the we had the fooder culture and then we had like a brink and, uh, you know, they would just generally get fed wort on a semi-regular basis, like the brink would at least. Um, and the fooder was getting like refreshed with like when we would pull mature beer, like we would pull 10 to 20 barrels and then we would refill with 10 to 20 barrels. The fooder, I always pre-ferment the beer in stainless, whether it is um, a clean fermentation or mixed culture, I'll always pre-ferment it because I just don't want to have like a whole bunch of croissant in there. Right, like a whole bunch of yeast, and like, um, yeah, you know, especially because we don't like clean it. Like, I don't think it's meant for primary fermentation. Um, but um, okay, so then getting to the brink, um, I can just imagine what's sitting on the bottom of that food. Right I mean, now. I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious to yeah. know, and I think it is yeah. actually probably about time to to find out pretty soon here. Um, I had a great conversation yeah. with Lauren Limbach of New Belgium about that years ago, and she's like, you know, the first time we did that, I was scared to death. And I was like, oh, we're not going to be able to get it back to, to what it was. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's like there was just the sludge down there was incredible. Um, but sure enough, we cleaned it out. And the next beer, it still had all the character that we wanted. And actually, it was a little bit better just because it didn't have yeah. some of that, like, you know, the longstanding kind of autolysis element to it that uh, can s- sort of build up in the bottom there. Well, that's the interesting thing is I'm not tasting autolysis. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying it's not there, but, um, you know, it's, um, if it is, I, I don't know what part of it it, it is in the beer. Sure, right? sure. Um, but, um, and there's I an argument like, to be made that some of that adds, adds like a creaminess and a, you know, kind of softness yeah, to a mouthfeel, I mean, which is not a negative, you know, by any stretch. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a off flavor. It's just a, just an attribute. Well, it definitely can be an off flavor in certain ways, but, um, you know, then you think sure. about like winemaking and where it is very important to certain types of wine. So, um, yeah, but I think what I would do, um, you're kind of like reminding me of it is like basically next time we do pull, um, like mature beer from the fooder that we possibly pull it all out, clean it, and then put back in the, por- the portion that we do not, um, actually package. Um, so therefore we, you know, get the yeast out, but like continue the, the Solera process. I mean, it is coming up on eight years. I think it might be. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, um, so then I like our house cultures in the brink did evolve at some point. Um, and I mean, the, the clear moment that they evolved was, um, 
we did a project with uh, with Jackie O's around the time that uh, Rag Clark was um, moving on to private press, and um, we uh, we let's see, we brewed a pretty traditional um, you know lambic adjacent wort, brought it up to the cool ship overnight, um, then we brought it back downstairs into barrels that were from the Jackios previously of the Jackios program. And then um, we pitched those barrels with, um, with our house cultures and Jackios house cultures. And uh, which, by the way, that beer is coming out pretty soon. It's called Cool Ship Regatta, and I'm waiting on the labels to get printed. So a little, I don't know, fun drop there, um, self-promotion. But um, anyways, the, the fermentation that we were witnessing in those barrels was like super, super nice. Like Jackio's has something in their culture that is just making like the exact flavor of uh, sweet tarts. It's like, it's just a sweet tarts bomb and I really, really liked it. And so um, I think at that time I started making a sample from those barrels into our house culture in the brink. So then we still had the fooder. The fooder was like separate and like more of a Flanders culture. And we had a different sour culture in the brink. And that one had the sweet tarts element. Um, I did bank that, um, like that blend so that we can always kind of go back to that baseline if anything happens. And um, I think uh, it's kind of just been of recent that I have notice some changes in that culture um and the main change is it's making beer really sour um and now we have a little bit of like a, you know we gotta reciprocate a little bit for this and um i think we gotta start and i mean i already have started bumping up the ibus both the ibus of the wort that we feed the culture and also the ibus of pretty much anything we inoculated because, I mean, I don't know about you, but, like, I personally don't like 3.0 pH sour beers. Um, they're, they're too damn sour. It's not, like, enjoyable. And, I mean, if that is just, like, if that is just one thing I can say about all of our metal beers, um, like, they have, like, common components to these beers, right? Um, they are... The, the the sourness is is very balanced right it's not aggressively lactic it's definitely not acetic and um they're not very funky at all like the beers that win for us hmm. they they're they're not horsey they're not goaty like the way that the brett expresses is really just more of a fruitiness you know um but you're not getting medicinal uh or you know band-aid or anything like that like it just isn't there. And there's something about, you know, it, it's, there's definitely, I think there's something to be said for this common thread of balanced acidity um, and low funk that is doing well on, on those judge tables. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's definitely not, that doesn't have to be what every sour beer is like. But that's a common thread that I see in what has brought us metals and, um, I guess I don't want to like overemphasize metals because um, I I do care about metals in some ways, but um, to me it's more about um, like being recognized by my fellow brewers and 
the breweries that I respect, you know, um, then, um, I mean, I don't really think they help sell beer. So, <laughs> Um, you <laughs> fair know. enough. Um, fair enough. How do you then, um, you know, so is it down to selection of breaths and, and, and or, or uh, you know, is there something also to the way that, um, you, you hop these, um, because, you know, also hops, especially, you know, some of these aged, uh, cheesier, uh, you know, aged noble hops can certainly create precursors then that, uh, you know, Brett does fun and funky things with, uh, on a, on a, to a greater degree, you know, what, what is, how do those things impact the kind of expression of funk in your beer? Sure. Um, so I think we're kind of still dipping our toe into the water on, you know, sour beers that, that the aged hops are kind of end up being a major flavor component later on down the road. Um, and, um, I mean, Here's one thing I know. Um, be careful with age hops because, um, like we we had some things where we would age, we would age the shit out of whole cone hops in our own attic, and um, you know by all measures of time they should have been ready to use, and they actually weren't. They were making beers that still tasted like too too like blue cheesy, like they weren't neutral enough, um, you know. And I think I narrowed that down to um, I think. Even though they were in open bags, they still maybe weren't getting quite enough oxygen because they weren't in like they weren't in like fully open like burlap sacks, right? So since then, I have um, aged like I I make sure our aged hops are like actually like super super aged, um, and there's really no maximum. I mean, um, you know the the hops I was using in um, our cool shit beer that we brewed this year so far. I mean, I think they were from the bag was opened in 2018. Um, and, um, so yeah, so I guess I've just been letting them go to truly neutral. Like, I mean, you really have to pick them up and smell them and like crush them and like make sure they're not cheesy. Um, I've been, I've been using some of the, uh, BSG, the pelletized age shops as well. Mm. That's pretty good. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, uh, I remember hearing about that from Ryan Fields when he was doing a, a seminar at a CDC. Yep. Back in the day, uh, not back in the day. I don't know. Like, a couple years ago yeah three four years ago let's say um so yeah so we've been figuring out more how to make good beer with age hops and like bringing a more like expressed brat funk um to the to the pale i think mostly the pale beer is really right um but um a lot of the a lot of the beers that we've made over the years and many of the ones that have one um that the an aged hop profile was either very very low in the beer or non-existent um so i don't know interesting data point i guess you know just like i agree with you it's it's fascinating to me to see this you know and try to kind of drill down to you know how these kind of beautiful soft funks you know, in these beers are created because you know, like we've mentioned before, Beechwood is, has just, they've unlocked the key to this, you know, gorgeous, um, soft funk, uh, you know, but you'd also think that, uh, you know, something like Cantillon would need to be mo more aggressively approaching their hops than they do, but their hops are really not aged very long. Like, uh, and they use all sorts of different hops. Like it is mm -hmm. such a an interestingly haphazard approach to hops, um, where they're often. I mean, I mean, they're using hops as little as one year old, and they're they're not really 
breaking everything up or, or forcing everything to age extensively. And so um, getting into what the actual chemistry is behind this, uh, you know, and how these things then lead into the expression that they do in beer is still fascinating. And it's still, a, I think it's something that uh, we have, none of us have really figured out truly. Um, but it's always interesting to, to see how different people approach that. Let's, let's mm-hmm. kind of move from there and then start talking about uh, fruit because, you know, you, you definitely do a lot with fruit. You mentioned that you love locally sourcing and working, uh, with Ohio ingredients where you can. Um, and then, you know, a number of the beers that, uh, that you make do and in, incorporate, um, fruits and other, other ingredients, uh, you know, in them. Talk to me about that creative process behind that and then how that then moves from, uh, from idea into kind of technical execution in some of these beers. You were talking about, uh, I mean, this is kind of in response to the Cantillon, um, like, not using hops that are actually that old. And like what I've found with sour beer, and this is what makes it difficult is to parse out is there, there's like 10 moving variables to each possible like final result. Right. So, I mean, the hops age is yes, something, right. But I mean, also it's the amount and also it's the cultures and also it's like 20 other things. And that's where it can be a little tough to like, troubleshoot sour beer also another trouble with troubleshooting sour beer is like sometimes you make a mistake and you don't figure out that you even made it for like a year or more and you already have like a whole bunch of beer you made like then you have to fix or dump these things are difficult um or like for instance um you know just like with these beers that had too high of a pH, or I'm sorry, too low of a pH, you know, I had to kind of parse out like a number of different possible factors from a number of different separate batches of beer. And it's kind of, you know, I'm still just, it's still really just theories, but what I'm seeing is it's not just one thing that's making these beers too sour. It's It's a multitude of factors. It's like, you know, how much residual sugar is there in this beer when it goes in the barrel? What are the IBUs? What are the cultures? You know, I'm sure there's other ones that I'm not even thinking of, like temperature. Um, there's, um, was the word pre-acidified, um, which would be like, in terms of pre-acidification here, I'm talking about like getting it down to like four or five to four, eight in order to, um, like get it out of the sort of enterobacter range. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's just like, I guess to, it's, it's just that sour, that sour beer making that is, unless you are getting super, super sciencey and analytical about it, which few sour beer breweries do, um, it's a lot of guesswork. All right. Let's talk about yeah, fruit yeah. now. Let's Sean. talk about fruit. Let's talk about fruit. Okay. So like our penultimate goal, which we definitely don't always hit is to, get stuff locally. And when I say locally, I'm using the word kind of broadly to mean like from our state. Um, so, uh, I'm, you know, somewhat limited in what I can get from Ohio and, um, it's, it's kind of got to work for the beer and for the timing and such. Um, but I got, um, some surprisingly amazing peaches from Ohio from Chilla coffee, which is about um, an hour away and um, those beers ended up in cleft and the batch of cleft that um, you know which is just a fruited 
peach, blonde, sour beer. Um, that was the one that won a GABF silver a couple years back. Um, so that was local fruit, which I was just like impressed by because, you know, Ohio is not the best or the worst state for fruit, but it's certainly not California and it's certainly not Georgia, right? I mean, we have a limited growing season. We don't have enormous farms typically. Um, you know, so most of the folks that, most of the folks that I deal with, with Ohio fruit are very small farmers. And this is like a phone call or a text and it's year to year. It's like impossible to really pre-plan for. Um, but you know, I can get some really good blackberries. I can get some often very good peaches. I can get some bomb ass black raspberries. If I can afford them, they are insanely expensive. Um, I can get pawpaws, but I, I, I'm going to be honest. I have mixed feelings on pawpaws of fruit, but it yeah. is pawpaw is very cool. in the fact that it is, um, actually a local and oftentimes forage ingredient. So, I mean, a truly local, like, like from the forest around here. So, right. um, like, let's just say, uh, I, like, I'm sure not everyone knows what a pawpaw is. So it is, uh, somewhat, uh, banana like, um, custardy fruit that grows on a tree and um it has these big seeds inside and it has sort of like an orange pulp so when it's ripe it's kind of like falling apart and um we can get pawpaw pulp processed by a local um, business called integration acres and um, we do make some beer with that uh it's it's got to be really expensive it's right now it's the most expensive fruit i buy but um, I, I am making some barrel-aged sour beer with that. I've got some in the bottles right now. So, um, you know, um, still trying to make pawpaws work for us because financially 10 bucks a pound is a lot to bite off, um, you know. And, um, I mean, there's other fruits I like more. It's just like I do, like when I come, when it's time to like weigh in values of things, like, being super super local and being like indigenous and in forest is has a value for sure um like i don't think we'll ever make a ton of that beer but it's it's cool to make it right so um you know i guess after after what i get from ohio then for barrel aged beers i definitely prefer to be on um like whole unprocessed fruits if possible like even if they're frozen like frozen is cool frozen is fine but um, I per, like I prefer not to use purees, although sometimes we use purees. Um, but um, I try to, I, I guess I try to like um, make sure to actually tell people if it's a puree because I feel like it's kind of like a different product a little bit. Um, fruit purees, while they are oftentimes very good, um, I try to save those for like our quick sour beers and like our. You know, we do, we do beer. When we do a quick sour, um, we don't do like a kettle souring process. Uh, I've been using, um, like Philly sour for those beers and, um, you know, and that's the type of beer that I would put like, uh, Oregon, Oregon or aseptic puree in. Um, cause right. I mean, it's hard to make, you know, 20 barrels of production beer with whole actual fruits, right? Like that's, that's difficult. Um, that's a perfect place for a puree. Uh, but sure. when it comes to fruited barley sours, um, you know, there's 
I, I, I think you can often um, get a better fruit expression from a real whole fruit. Um, and it's, I mean, best case scenario is you get your hands, your eyes, and your taste buds on that fruit before you decide to purchase it. Uh, that is the best case scenario. But um, again, this is um, this is not like California. You know, a lot of times I'm I have to buy something like sight unseen and hope, like hopefully trust the grower. You know, um, cherries from King Farms in Michigan, super great cherries. Um, we use their Balton and Montmorency cherries. You know, so I guess I, I guess I have a bit of a piecemeal approach to fruiting. Um, but like I'm sure other sour beer producers have told you like. You know, fruited sour beer is definitely going to sell. I don't know, like what magnitude of sales faster than unfruited sour beer, but sure, like, sure, this is this is what people like. So you know, um, like I like I really dig a, a sour beer that is not fruited, but um, you know, I I can probably guarantee it would take us five to ten times longer to sell through a batch. Sure. Um, you know, when, when you're using something like peaches, is there anything special to the way you process it? You chop it up, you pull bits out. Okay. Um, you know, is there something, you know, how do you generally go through a technical process of, uh, of creating that maceration on the fruit? Okay. So, um, I would say like to the fruit itself, I do as little as possible. So if it's a, if it's a peach, it's taking out the pit. Um, you know, if it's a cherry, they're actually typically pitted when you get them and it's actually, you have to like custom order them in order for them to not be pitted. Um, cause they go through a pitting machine like 99% of the time. Um, but I've definitely had some evolution and progression as far as like how to get sour beer on fruit. Um, like in the, in the, uh, first like five years of little fish, uh, there was no such thing as a fruiting specific tank. And so everything was actually fruited in the barrels. And as much as that is hard work, it's totally viable. And I, I would actually like to um, sort of pitch that as an idea to people with like limited capacity in their own breweries because, um, you know, it works. And, you know, what we would typically do, whether it was a puree or a whole fruit, would be we would take a barrel that was full, right? And we would take out about, um, one keg, which it ends up being about a quarter of the barrel, um, and we would we would basically keg off one keg of sour beer, and then we would that makes space for the fruit, right? And you can add your fruit, leave a little bit of headspace, and actually do your re-fermentation in the oak barrel, uh, usually with like a breathable bong on it. Um, and then, so what I do to make sure that that would not like go acetic or get like funky in a bad way is very quickly after that primary fermentation on the fruit has subsided i would top that barrel back up almost to the very brim with that same beer and then it can kind of chill and macerate on that fruit and uh you can get back to uh packaging that whenever whenever it's like all the way done getting out that fruit character um, how many they, days would that be for that fruit refermentation then in a barrel like that? Uh, it kind of depends on, um, you know, how active your cultures are, but you know, um, you're kind of looking at, I don't know, like let's say, uh, a couple of weeks to maybe a month of like, a kind of like off gassing, um, actively and then topping back up after that and giving it, I mean, 
back in those days when we were fruiting in the barrels more, I would probably give it a couple months on that fruit because you're just really waiting on basically time to macerate and break down that fruit. You know, you can't get in there mechanically and stir that up. Um, and also that gave us a, um, that gave us like a pretty, uh, good time to allow carbonation to get back down the baseline. Cause like back in those days, um, I wasn't, I wasn't measuring, um, like dissolved CO2 in beer. Um, and I, I didn't have like, well, I mean, okay. It wasn't measuring residual dissolved CO2 in a sour beer before then bottle conditioning it. And right. that is kind of dangerous place to be. So the way <laughs> indeed it is the way to get around that is to just allow them to off gas like a whole whole lot until they taste flat. So that would be months. Um, so now we do things um, in a in a way that's a, a little more advanced. Um, we do have like a stainless steel IBC tote that we use for a fruiting vessel, and so that has you know a big man way on top, and it has a racking arm on the side. And around the racking arm is a screen, like a stainless steel screen that we built, like perforated mesh stainless steel around the racking arm. So now we have a big old fruiting tank. So now, now if we're doing something of like what I would call uh, a full batch, like a seven to 10 barrel batch, uh, we would be choosing the bar- whether it's barrels or fruit or beer or what have you, we'd be choosing that blend ahead of time, um, bringing that into the IBC adding the fruit there um and then we get a chance to like do things like punch downs which would physically um like physically macerate that fruit a little bit more so um and in addition we're also measuring the uh dissolved uh like residual co2 sure um, we use a tool called a carbodicer which um it's like a winemaker's tool to measure it's 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 different than like a, a zaman nagel, um, which would be measuring like like a typical beer, like draft beer CO two levels. This thing measures like below one dissolved volume of CO two pretty accurately. So it's a little winemaker's mm. tool, and so from from that we have a, we can get a much more consistent um, bottle conditioning um, like level of CO two, right? So um, so. Yeah, so now the process is more like get all get the blend into the tank, macerate on fruit. Now we're a little bit less worried about, um, you know, if we package that beer off on the younger side. But it's also like not a problem for it to be on the fruit longer, um, unless I don't know. I mean, there's there's maybe some arguments for getting it off so it's not like extracting too much tannin. But like I don't know. I haven't had a lot of experiences personally where I'm actually getting like fruit tannins in a negative way um so sure. you know after you know after that beer is done we would um we would uh you know bring that into the packaging tank um you know and, and there's and there's room in in either tank to sort of adjust the blend if necessary you know um very very rarely am i thinking a beer is too fruity and um it needs to be blended down with uh right. unfruited beer i mean that just doesn't really doesn't really happen um, I guess the the fruiting rates I'm typically going for, I mean, I'd say like even, even, str- even strong, very, very expressive fruits like raspberries, most things these days getting a minimum of two pounds per gallon. 
um, and uh, often higher. Because um, that's kind of, that's the level of, I think that is one way in which we sort of push our beer to a little bit meet consumer demand um, is the actual fruiting level that we choose, you know? Yeah. And it's higher, right? Like it, um, you know, and it's still balanced, but, um, but, uh, it's, it's an expensive game making, uh, fruit and sour beer and, and they sell for like a, an equivalent price because of that. Sure. Sure. Well, that person that wants to drink a fruited sour beer is drinking it for the fruit, not for, you know, incredible subtlety and balance. Um, right. But they I mean, want that they want that fruit expression because they enjoy that fruit. It's like our it's our job to make it, um, you know, whether people know it or not, like still like a beer with a ton of integrity, beer that is not um, a kettle sour fruit smoothie. You know, it's a totally different thing. Um, and you know, so yeah, I don't think we've ever had anything where, you know, you lose the beer in it, but um, but you know, yeah. You know, three pounds per gallon raspberry or uh blackberries yeah no problem or even <laughs> higher you know right uh, right sure um and then um another couple of like just as they come to mind like key things for our sour process for our sour beer process like no matter where they fit in um they like the step-by-step okay topping up barrels i know a lot of people don't top up their barrels and I just personally haven't had good luck not talking about barrels. Yeah. Um, we top up our barrels, um, if I'm on it, at least three times a year. And yeah, it's a lot of work. Um, but I think it makes for cleaner, sour beer, um, like less acetic for sure. Um, and, you know, acetic acid, acetic acid leads to ethyl acetate. Ethyl acetate is bad. Um, you know, more than a little bit nail of polish. Like, Nobody yeah, wants to drink nail polish. More than a little. I, like I'm, I'm like actually pretty. I'm pretty down on sour beer with off flavors. Um, I just don't dig it. As a as an industry, we're still getting people to know what sour beer is like supposed to taste like. So it, sure. it does actually doesn't do the industry a good service if um, if people are putting out beers with like rampant off flavors as like expensive sour beer i mean that that actually it's either going to make them like bad flavors and just think that's what it's supposed to taste like or it's going to make them never want to buy it again. somehow american uh, sour beer makers made everybody love intense acidity early on yeah um, well i think <laughs> only I think, finally um, recovering from that so like, uh, <laughs> I, th- I think there's a place for that sometimes yeah as long as it i mean but i don't think i can do it for every beer and fair enough i think yeah um, it's still got to be clean, right? Like it still can't have like rugged, wrong flavors. It's still got to be a clean, intense acidity, if so. But um, Fair, I was gonna say, yeah. what what else do I think is really important to our program? Um, like the actual bottle conditioning phase. Like um, you know, we're pretty big on um, making an acid shock starter for every batch we do because i've been burned a couple times for not um you know we we uh i think earlier on i was using um just a rehydrated little bit of wine yeast and toss that in because that's what people say to do but um i think what you don't realize is that 
most of that wine yeast is dying the second it hits a highly acidic environment. And then what's really fermenting out a lot of that beer is Brett. And because, um, you know, that Brett may be stressed, it may sometimes be making, um, like actual bad flavors in the bottle. And that was something I had to learn the hard way and kind of, um, like we never had a problem where we didn't do an acid shock starter and the beer didn't carbonate, um, which some people have had issues with. Um, but we just had some batches where I think the fermentation profile changed in the bottle because, because we didn't have a healthy yeast going in. Um, so acid shock starter, what you're doing with this bottle conditioning yeast that you're then adding in the mix, you are intentionally in that starter, lowering the, you know, the pH, increasing the acidity in that starter so that it'll kill off the, any of the, those yeast cells that are sensitive to that acidity and then select for those that are less sensitive to that acidity and then grow that up to the proper volume of starter um, before you then add into the the uh, blend and then uh, um, you know put that into the you know into the the tank before you uh, fill bottles. Yeah, so um, there's some there's a good rundown on making an acid shock starter on the Milk the Funk wiki. Yep. Um, and so it would be um, they describe a two step process. I actually just do a one step, but um, yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly um, taking your yeast and over one or two steps getting it used to a more acidic environment so that when you put it into a highly acidic environment, you don't just automatically um, stress or kill it. Um, and I, th I think it's helped us um, a couple things. Um, re reduce, reduce the amount of time it takes to clean up THP um, and um, definitely make sure that we don't have like off actual off flavors developing in bottles. I mean, I, I did have one batch um, where I, I swear to God, it, you know, this is like, you know, expensive beer, put a lot of time and effort into, uh, did taste good and had no off flavors going into the bottle. And after, during the course of bottle conditioning, became fecal, um, which, I mean, that was, that was a real hit, you know, like, um, you know, and like, I, there's so many times that, you know, it's, it's hard to say exactly what happened. We didn't send this into a lab, but I definitely suspect that the yeast was stressed. Um, and it was probably the Brett that, you know, that mean Brett making fecal character is, is quite like, that's a thing that happened. So I think it's just the Brett kind of took off and did all the, the brunt work of the bottle conditioning yeah. at probably like a very low cell count and, you know, kind of mess that up. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know things that are key to our program, the barrel top ups, the acid shock starters, you know, um, just being really honest about how a barrel tastes and, um, knowing those sour beer, um, off flavors, like the back of your hand, um, you know, um, I don't know. I, I probably need to do more uh, <laughs> analytical, like, sure, like sure. analytical, um, like sit downs. Like, like I, I want to get all the brewers in on the tasting sessions more. You know, 
I think, uh, and the blending and all that and, and kind of get more eyes on it than just me every time more, uh, really, you know, more to the point, more noses and taste buds on it. Right. Sure. So, yeah. All right. Well, you're a whole bunch of Pilsners in, but, uh, at this point we are just going on and on and we've been talking for, uh, for a while now. Um, even though I, I'm joking about that because you're drinking non-alcoholic Pilsners for, drinking, uh, uh, for untitled art, Italian style pills. And it ain't bad. Nice. 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 Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, because uh, you're in the midst of uh, a year of not drinking beer, you know, um, for your own personal health reasons, which has been an interesting experiment. Uh, we were talking about it before we started the podcast. And, um, you know, normally we might talk in, you know, at this end here, kind of wrap up in this like, kind of big picture thing for the business. But I'm curious as you're as you're now eight months into to, uh, not consuming alcohol, uh, um, you know, what have you learned from this process uh, while you're obviously still making beer, um, you know, on a daily basis, it is your job, um, still to do this. And you, you, you know, it's not, uh, you know, you have not permanently forsaken alcohol. This is simply, you know, something that for health reasons you've, you've needed to do, but from your perspective on this right now, uh, looking back at it, uh, you know, what have you learned over the last eight months of, of not consuming alcohol, but being actively involved in, in the brewing mm-hmm. business? I mean, to be brutally honest, I've learned a lot about like my own personal dependency on alcohol for, yeah, you know, for both reasons of like mitigating like anxiety and chronic pain due, <laughs> due to a health reason. So, I mean, you know, um, like, I mean, and that, that's like a lot to unpack obviously, but, um, you know, I think that, um, in some ways I've really enjoyed this so far, like having some time off to not drink and, um, what I'd like to get back to is like a more healthy level of drinking. Um, because I definitely was, you know, and I, and I'm sure there's many people that can relate to this, but I was, you know, like so many of us in the industry, like definitely going a bit overboard on my consumption. And I mean, you know, human, human bodies aren't meant to drink multiple beers and, you know, in a night and like do that seven nights a week. It's not, it's not supposed to happen like that. So, uh, what I got to figure out is how to gracefully reintegrate alcohol back into my life. But like, I don't know, place some sort of, I don't know if it's like set rules or like something that keeps me from like creeping back to the spot where I was at. Um, which was not a super healthy spot, although, you know, it could have been a lot worse too, right? Like I wasn't blacking out, but you know, um, it just, just didn't feel healthy to me. So, I mean, I don't know. I've learned that there are some good non-alcoholic beers out there actually. Um, and, and there's some horrible ones as well. Um, but, uh, I, I've learned that I can, uh, I can actually function at like a social event for brewers without drinking. And, um, I'll typically have, you know, a drink cup and a spit cup. And, you know, just as if I were, you know, a pregnant lady in the industry or something, uh, just taste some beer and have a good time. And, um, you know, I've, I've definitely managed to find ways to have a good time throughout this so um you know it can't it can't be done you know but um damn you know i I miss drinking a beer with folks after a shift 
and like there is a different way that you um you process a beer uh like your understanding of a beer by sitting down with it and um really just slowly enjoying it as it warms up and you know you have a sip you swirl it and you sniff it you know i mean like over this time like i would call it like getting to know a beer right it's um that's how that's how a beer should be drank in my opinion and i'm i'm doing all right because i mean i can still like taste everything i make and i can swirl and spit or i could even sneak like a sneak a teaspoon of like let it slide down my throat right but like uh, I miss, I very much miss both the social aspect of um, just one, you know, one beer after work with the with the coworkers, and I, I also miss getting to know my own product or someone else's product in that way, where it's like it's like a, it's almost like you're having like an intimate conversation with an inanimate, <laughs> an inanimate object. Um, so yeah, especially this month. Uh, you know, as, as a, you know, as a decent chunk of populations, you know, try not to drinking for just a month. Um, it's new, useful for us all to think about just how much we consume as an industry. Yeah. But um, Hey people, people, why are you doing that to us? Don't you know, we have like, bathrooms <laughs> to run? like yeah, that's a hard month for us. Come on. I agree. Spread it I out. Dry, Jan- dry January <laughs> is a terrible idea. Yeah. Spread it um, out. And people whatever. Like take a, take a it, couple days off a month or something. That's exactly right. If everybody took one one week off a month, for example, you know, you'd actually be then taking twelve weeks off per year rather than just four. Much more significantly positive for health, right? And uh, um, and much more of a, a just an overall process for you know making sure that uh, we're not allowing things to to grow unbalanced in our own lives as we as we participate in this, where the the challenge is always there to um, you know to not uh, let alcohol control. You know our own lives in this process. Thanks for talking about this stuff. That's a great place to bring this to a close. G and D Chillers has partnered with three thousand plus breweries around the country and offers twenty four seven service and support. Raw North Star Pills is a base malt you can set your compass by. AccuBrew gives brewers like you unprecedented insight into your fermentation process. ProBrew Solutions are specifically designed to help brew your beer. Flavored craft juice concentrate blends from Old Orchard have shipped to over 46 states. SS Brewtech has taken tech they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made it available to every craft brewer. Christian Hansen is bringing their knowledge to brewers with their SmartBev range of frozen liquid yeast and freeze-dried bacteria. And join the craft beer community in Sacramento March 19th through 22nd for the California Craft Beer Summit. Sean, if people want to learn more about Little Fish, whether that's visiting you all in real life or uh, finding out more about what you do out there on the internet, um, where do they find you all? Uh, for sure. Um, so Athens, Ohio, 45701, first off. But after that, I would say uh, on our, our website, littlefishbrewing.com. And our Instagram handle is at littlefishbrewing. I am 99% sure sure so <laughs> yeah 99 percent. i mean sure. i should know because like that's also i do the social media mostly but um yeah so, so it'll be something like that yeah, yeah. so you know yeah. drop drop me a um you know i don't know if any of y'all have a email question um drop me like a i don't know if you have a brewing question shoot me a instagram message okay because uh, i'll see it i'm the guy doing that too 
Fair enough. Uh, Sean, thanks for talking to me uh, about how you make beer. Appreciate it. It's always great talking with you. Cheers. Yeah, you too, Jamie. Have a good night. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.